Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5? you're new with us, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And we uh, currently are in chapter 5 in a series we've entitled, Jesus Declares His Divinity. Now, when John opened his gospel, he stated clearly and categorically the divinity of Christ. You remember the very first verse of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But now in chapter 5, he focuses on the testimony of Jesus himself declaring his own divinity. Look, it's one thing for John to declare Jesus' divinity, and that's all well and fine. It's another thing for Jesus now to declare his divinity himself. And guys, this is a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry. I say that because starting right here, the persecution against Jesus by his enemies begins to escalate exponentially. And most of it was the result of him going around claiming to be the Son of God and therefore equal with God. As we have been saying in this series, no one can be equal with God who is not God. Okay? And um, as we pointed out in verse 18, when the Pharisees accused him of, you know, making himself equal with God because he claimed to be the Son of God, the Greek is, uh, he went around continually making himself equal with God. In other words, this was not an isolated incident. It was the hallmark of his ministry to go around telling people that he was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in human form. Now, in verses 17 to 30 of chapter 5, Jesus makes five claims to his own divinity, five claims of equality with God the Father. We've already looked at the first two. Let me just review them briefly. First of all, Jesus claims equality with God in his person, verse 18. But Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, my father. Well, jump down to verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. As we have said several times, in Jewish culture, a son was always considered to be equal with his father in personhood. Not in authority. Father was always greater than the son in authority. But in personhood, in fact, in the Jewish mindset uh, on the subject, uh, was that the son was an equal extension of his father. An equal extension of his father, which feeds into the statement that Jesus would go on to make to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the father, for I and the father are one. In other words, I'm an extension of the father, Jewish mindset. And so in the minds of Jesus' enemies, and, and rightly so, by the way, anyone claiming to be the son of God, was claiming to be equal with God. And anyone who claimed to be equal with God was claiming to be God. That's why they were so furious with him. And that's why they wanted to uh, kill him, because they accused him of blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. Okay. That would be blasphemy unless you're God. But anyway, uh, the second main point. Jesus claims equality with God in his work. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. And guys, as we have pointed out, the work that Jesus was referring to, 
the work that he and his father are constantly doing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is the work of saving souls, or in other words, the work of redemption. Look, when Jesus worked on the Sabbath, or any other day, but of course he got in trouble when he worked on the Sabbath, all right? Because uh, they believed he was violating the Sabbath. Jesus never violated the Sabbath as God intended it. He only violated their stupid man-made rules of what the Sabbath was all about. All right? We've talked about that. But when Jesus worked on the Sabbath, uh, healing people, like he healed this guy who was lame for 38 years in verses 1 to 15. Yeah, he did it to help people, no doubt about that. But the bigger issue was he was doing the work of redemption by showing the Jewish people and the Gentiles, because he had Gentile followers as well. He was doing these works to show them that he was, listen, the long-awaited prophesied Messiah of Israel. We've looked at Isaiah 35 and other places where God said, look, you're going to know my Messiah, because there's all kinds of false messiahs always coming down the pike. You're going to know my Messiah, that he's the true Messiah, because when he comes, the blind are going to see, he's going to cause the lame to walk, he's going to cause the mute to speak. These were all things that Jesus was doing. And all of them pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, but the Messiah of the entire world. And um, the Jewish scriptures taught that the Messiah, when he came, would also be the savior of mankind. He would save people from the grip of Satan. This happened back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve blew it and basically turned control of the world and mankind over into the hands of Satan. God promised at that time he was going to send a redeemer, a Messiah, a savior, who would deliver people from the end. Not just the Jewish people, by the way. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, that in this Messiah, God said all the families of the earth would be blessed. Jesus Christ is not just the Messiah for the Jewish people. He's the Messiah and Savior for all mankind. And by doing these works, he was showing that he was the one God had promised was coming. Uh, the one who would save people from the grip of Satan and eventually establish a kingdom where all the people that, that uh, received him into their heart would become members of. And so when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and then proved it by working miracles, healing the lame, casting out demons, and eventually raising the dead, he was doing the work of redemption by revealing himself to be the Savior who would save people from their sins and make them children of the living God if they would receive him into their heart as their savior by faith. So again, guys, verse 19 is a statement of divinity in that no one can do what God does, the work of redemption, unless they themselves are God because nobody but God can save a soul. And that's the idea. Now, ver uh, the third main point in our outline Jesus claims equality with God in his power over life and death. And I just want to introduce this main point with uh, just the first part of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. Now, there's something in the Greek I wanted to bring out, and I thought it worthy enough to bring out, because I think it does make a good point that we need to understand. It's interesting the word Jesus uses here for the Father's love for the Son. It isn't a common word in the New Testament for God's love, which is agape. But here Jesus uses the Greek word phileo. phileo. And phileo is a word for love that speaks of the deep feelings of affection that two very dear friends have for one another. Agape is an unconditional giving love. 
listen to me, it's not connected or motivated by, it's not connected to or motivated by feelings. I'm not saying that they not, couldn't be a part of agape love, feelings. I'm just saying, though, that agape love, God's love, is really not uh, motivated by feelings, connected to feelings. It's a giving love that can even love enemies because, again, feelings are not a part of it. If a person has a need uh, and he's an enemy, Jesus said, meet the need. By so doing, you might win them to me. You might win them to Christ if you show kindness to an enemy who has a need. Agape love is all about giving. It's all about helping and doing. It's unconditional. I'm not looking for anything in, response, uh, in return. Falao love is different. Falao love is friendship. It's reciprocal love. Okay? Um, it, it's a caring, affectionate kind of lo- friendship love. Or, you know, the, uh, the town Philadelphia comes from two Greek words, uh, phileo and adelphos, the city of brotherly love. That's what phileo is. It's, it's brotherly love. It's a deep friendship, love, that kind of thing. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word phileo is used to refer to the Father's love for the Son. And in the Greek, guys, it's in the present tense. Present tense, which describes a love that is ongoing and unbroken. Listen, an affectionate love that has gone on from all and will continue for all eternity. Jesus is saying here this, I'll paraphrase. My father has such deep affection for me that he never does anything that he doesn't reveal to me, and I never do anything but what he has directed me to do. We have this deep abiding affection for one another. See, agape love, that's wonderful. It's it's unconditional. It's a powerful love. But it's not really a friendship love, okay? Don't forget the context the Pharisees and all were accusing Jesus of being anti-God because he was breaking the Sabbath. God would never have the true Messiah break the Sabbath. Well, he wasn't. He was just breaking their stupid rules that they had come up with for the Sabbath. But they thought he was acting as an enemy of God, and all the works that he did proved that he was working contrary to God. And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, not only did the Father send me, but we are in such deep, we have such deep love and affection for each other. He never does anything but what he reveals to me. Now Jesus is on the earth in his earthly ministry. And I never do anything but what he shows me to do. So if you're mad at me because I healed somebody on the Sabbath, you better look at the Father because he directed me to do it. If you're going to get mad at me, you better get mad at the one who sent me, is the idea. Okay? Now, Jesus went on to say... <clears throat> Whatever the Father has directed and empowered the Son to do up until this point, well, would be minor in comparison to what the Father would direct the Son to do in the future. Again, verse 20, The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Now again, earlier in John 5, Jesus, the Father, had directed Jesus to heal a man who had been lame for 38 years. And um, as much as that healing amazed the crowd, amazed the crowds, uh, Jesus predicted that the more spectacular works were still coming. For the Father would direct the Son in the very near future, probably in the next few days, to raise the dead that they, folks that followed his ministry, would marvel. And the idea is not marvel because he was trying to entertain people. 
Jesus Christ didn't do miracles to entertain uh, or to gain a, a big following. It was The idea was he wanted people to marvel at the works because they would testify to the reality of who he was. He said to his disciples, look, if you're not going to believe me for the sake of the words I speak, believe me for the sake of the works that I do. They testify of who I am. So the idea was Jesus wanted to do and the Father wanted to, Jesus, wanted Jesus to do greater works, even raising the dead, because he wanted people to know unmistakably, this is the one I promised to send you. He is the Savior of the world. Put your faith in him and be saved, and you'll be a member of my kingdom forever. Very important point. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, For Jesus to claim to have power to raise the dead was a blasphemous thing in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. They gave that power to God alone. They said that Jehovah held, the three, held three great keys. The key to open the heavens and give rain, Deuteronomy 28, verse 12. The key to open the womb and give conception, Genesis 30, verse 22. And the key to open the grave and raise the dead, Ezekiel 37, verse 13. Now, guys, as far as the Gospels are concerned, up until this point, Jesus hadn't yet raised anyone from the dead. So the fact that Jesus made this claim that he would be raising uh, people from the dead under the Father's direction, well, it really ratcheted up the opposition against him. Not only did his enemies accuse him of blasphemy for claiming to be equal with God, but now they began to accuse him of being demon-possessed and out of his mind. In John 10, verse 20, the leaders even said, Why do you listen to him? He's crazy. He's got a demon. They're thinking well, something like this. I can just hear them thinking when he announced, I'm going to be raising the dead. He's going to raise the dead. He's nuts. He's nuts. Only God can raise the dead. Exactly. Remember what Jesus said? Out of, out of your mouth, the words you speak will either condemn you or justify you. By your words you should be justified. By your words you should be condemned. They're out of their own mouths. They said, nobody can raise the dead but God. So when Jesus started raising the dead, you think they would fall on their faces before him and worship him as God. They didn't. They wrote him off as being of the devil. And therefore, they are guilty before God and will stand before him. And their own words will be their judges on the day of judgment. But verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, guys, in the Gospels, Jesus raised three people from the dead. Jairus' daughter is recorded in Mark 5 and Luke 8. The widow of Nain's son, Nain was a village, and the widow of Nain's son is recorded in Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. And, of course, the one we are most familiar with is Lazarus, recorded in John 11, verses 38 to 44. We'll talk about, you know, you're either dead or you're not dead, right? There's no degrees of being dead. But if there was, Lazarus would be the most dead uh, of anybody. And we'll, we'll talk about what I'm babbling about when we get to John 11. But look, it could be, I'm open to that, that Jesus raised others from physical death. Excuse me, that he raised others from physical death that weren't recorded in the Gospels. But we do know for sure he raised three. Of course, the power to give life in the first place through conception or to give it back to somebody who has died through resurrection, is a power that only God possesses. And while it's true that in the Old Testament, prophets like Elijah 
and Elisha did raise the dead, uh, never at any time did they ever claim they had the power to raise the dead or to impart life in themselves. They always and only saw themselves as instruments and conduits in the hands of God Almighty who raised the dead through them. However, that was not true of Jesus, whom John opens his gospel by telling us in chapter 1, verse 4, in him was what? Life. It was inherent in him. He was and is the source of life. He created all life. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. Jesus Christ is God, and God is the source of all life. And um, he tells us in him was life in verse 4 of chapter 1. But after he says in verse 1, Jesus is God. Because again, only God has the power to impart life. And then consistent with his divinity, Jesus claimed to have the power in himself to raise the dead. If you're God, and in you resides life, of course you can give it whenever you want. Or revoke it whenever you choose. And we know in John 10, you don't have to turn there, but verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. He's talking about going to the cross and dying. That I may lay down my life that I may take it uh, again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Wow. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down freely for the sheep, and I also have the power to take it again, to be raised from the dead. And guys, that's why verse 21 is also a declaration of divinity as spoken by Jesus of himself. For entity is claiming to have the power to impart life. Again, something only God can do. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Look, as powerful a being as Satan is, he doesn't possess the power to give life or to resurrect the dead. He doesn't have that power. In fact, that's a power in Scripture only spoken of God. Uh, Michael the archangel, Gabriel, two of the most powerful angels in heaven, never says that they have the, the power to give life. Lucifer, very strong angel, fallen angel now, very powerful being. Nowhere, anywhere does it say that Satan has the power to give life. Now, that brings us to the fourth point in our outline, which is tied to our last point, which the last point was Jesus claims equality with God in his power over life and death. This fourth one is closely connected. In fact, it dovetails with that last point, and that is Jesus claims equality with God in his authority to judge the world. Again, verses 21 and 2, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father in his power to raise the dead. And now he couples it with his claim of being equal with the Father in his authority to judge the world. In these two verses, Jesus connects raising the raising of the physically dead, which he's going to do someday. In fact, he goes on to talk about this, which we'll look at next week. In verses 28 and 9, don't marvel, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come forth. So at one point, he's going to resurrect everybody, all right? But in these two verses, he connects raising the physically dead to the coming, uh, to the coming and final judgment of all mankind. And again, we'll talk about that more next time.
What's confusing, guys, to some and why they misinterpret what Jesus is actually saying about uh, res the resurrection of the dead, which he talks about from verses 21 to 29, is because there are, and don't miss this. We'll, again, we'll amplify this and explain it next week, God willing. But the reason this is confusing to some people and the reason they come away with misinterpretations and so on is because they often don't realize that there are three resurrections in view in verses 21 to 29. One of them spiritual, and the other two are physical. All right, we'll talk about that again next week. For the rest of our time this morning, though, I want to talk about, we're talking about judgment, right? And we'll amplify this next time. But we've started to introduce the idea of Jesus being a judge a judge of all the earth. And um, I want to look, use the rest of our time this morning to talk about the concept of a God who judges people for the lives that they have lived on the earth. You realize, of course, that there are many people in our country and around the world who have a problem believing in a God who judges anyone for anything. And so they deny and reject the concept of God being a judge altogether. They just won't even entertain it. Just dismiss it out of hand in favor of just embracing their concept of God, which is that he's a loving, benign, non-judgmental deity, you know, the epitome of tolerance and acceptance. Uh, they have created a God, uh, you know, in the book of Genesis, it says God created man in his image and likeness. Well, now man's returned the favor. Okay, now people are creating God in their image and likeness. Okay, creating a God that uh, suits them. And a God who judges sin uh, and a God I want to really be associated with. So I'm going to come up with a God that's loving and tolerant, non-judgmental, uh, you know, pretty much lets people do what they want kind of thing. But let me just say this. The Bible is very clear that God is a judge. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, God is called the judge of all the earth. Other places, I'll just give you a few from Psalms. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 9, verse 8, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Psalm 50, verse 6, Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge so it's obvious and undeniable from scripture that god although supremely loving is also supremely righteous a just god who must judge sin and punish sinners but even more specifically here in john 5 22 jesus tells us clearly that the father actually judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son now that's a truth that's that is um, repeated in the epistles and I'll just read you a couple. 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul said, finally there is laid up for me, this was right before Paul was executed, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. You see, guys, listen to me. The only person in the universe 
who has the right to sit in judgment of the people of this world is the one who created them and gave them life in the first place. And that, of course, is God Almighty and more specifically, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ created all things. We know that from the third verse of John's Gospel. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus made all things, and that would include all animate things, especially angels and people. Those are the ones that are going to be subjected to judgment someday. And Jesus made all people, all angels. He's the creator of all things. In fact, we read in Colossians 1, verse 16, For through him, Jesus Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. And he talks about uh, the angelic realm. He talks about people on earth. Everything was created through him and for him. So he has the right to judge because he is the creator of all things. But furthermore, the only person who could righteously sit in judgment of mankind was a man, a descendant of Adam, who himself was morally perfect and sinless. And there's only one man who has been morally perfect and sinless, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. That is why Jesus Christ alone has the right to judge sinners. One commentator, Warren Worsby, said, and I quote, So Jesus claimed to be equal with God, the Father, in his works. But he also claimed to be equal with the Father in executing judgment. To the Orthodox Jew, Jehovah God was the judge of all the earth. Again, Genesis 18, verse 25. And no one dared to apply that august title to himself, but Jesus did. By claiming to be the judge, he claimed to be God, end quote. Guys, in our current man-centered self-deification, self-worship, everything, everyone doing whatever seems right in their own eyes culture, Many people believe that God doesn't have the right to judge people for the way they're living. The reasoning goes something like this. People in our culture have been divorced from God for so long. We have become such a secular nation for so many years that people no longer even think about... There's, the rise of neo-atheism is incredible. A lot of folks, a lot of millennials don't even believe in God anymore. Okay? And it's because, you know, people aren't really teaching their kids, taking them to church, uh, you know, in the schools. Public schools were the Christian schools at one time uh, because they used Bible verses to teach kids the alphabet and how to spell and write everything else. I mean, it's incredible. But that's long gone. That's long gone. And because we as a, a country have divorced ourselves from God for so many years, I'm talking about in general now, um, and become secular, have become secular in our thinking and all, a lot of people, of course, if you take away Judeo-Christianity, which what our, was what our country was built upon, because man has an uh, innate uh, propensity to worship someone or something. Well, you take away the true and living God, and you replace Judeo-Christianity, which is our religion, which is a relationship, really. What do you replace it with? Secular humanism, the worship of man. And so because of that, and the Supreme Court years ago ruled that secular humanism was a religion. But secular humanism is all about worshiping man, all about us worshiping ourselves. 
And so because people have been fed the steady diet of secular humanism and that they are really a God unto themselves who answers to no one, they're autonomous really in what they want to do. They now actually believe, if, they're, if they even believe in God at all now, they believe, well, he hasn't got the right to tell me how to live. I mean, I'm in charge of my life. I can do what I want. <laughs> well, you can tell him that someday when you say him. See how it goes over with him. But uh, look, guys, nothing can be more absurd or farther from the truth. When somebody tries to argue that point with me that, look, it isn't right that God tries to control people's lives by telling them what they can and cannot do. I mean, even to the point of judging them someday for, for not keeping his commandments, that's wrong. It's wrong of God to try to force us to do what he, uh, you know, what he wants us to do. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do my own thing. I always tell them, look, God has given you life. That body that your spirit is living in, he gave you that. He made that. Furthermore, you're living on a planet he created. You're breathing his air, drinking his water, eating his food. He has every right to command you to obey his laws. Folks, he is the king of all the earth. And we are all, not just Christians, all mankind, we are all his subjects. The only difference being some accept that and submit to him, while others reject that and live in rebellion against him. Of course, those who reject God's authority over their lives and choose rather to live in rebellion against his laws, he promises he has to judge someday. Not that he wants to, he has to. He's a righteous judge. He cannot overlook sin. It has to be punished. And so God promises, look, if you continue on in your rebellion, I have to judge you someday. I've got to punish sin. Look, most of the people in this world say they believe in God. But <laughs> most of those same people will tell you, but I only believe in a loving God who doesn't judge people and send them to hell. Many people have, have a problem believing in a God who judges sin and sinners. Judges sin and judges sinners, those living in rebellion against him. Whether they know it or not, these folks are at war with God. Rebels are at war with God. What are they rebelling against? They're rebelling against God and his word. So they're rebels. They're at war with him. Sometimes they're churchgoers and don't realize they're at war with God because you can go to church and light a few candles and go home and live all week long as the God of your life, master of your life, doing your own thing, whatever, and then go to church on Sunday the next week, that means nothing to God. You're still a rebel. You're a church-going rebel. But you're still a rebel because you refuse to bow the knee to his, in submission to his authority over your life. The Bible is clear that judgment awaits the wicked. It's going to start in the form of the Great Tribulation period. You can read Revelation 6 through 19. It will climax in Jesus coming back to the earth and will wipe out his enemies with a sword that proceeds from his mouth. But folks, this is going to be a judgment on a worldwide scale, unparalleled in Scripture since the days of Noah. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 1.
I'll just give you a flavor of this. I mean, there are verses sprinkled all over the place that talk about this. 2 Thessalonians 1, starting with verse 6. Paul said, In his justice he will pay back those who persecute you. So he's talking to a group of people there in Thessalonica who are being persecuted for their faith, and he's promising them someday God's going to fix that. Someday the Lord's going to punish those who persecute his people. Verse 7, And God will provide rest for you when Jesus returns, of course, who are being persecuted, and also for us when, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels, read Revelation 19, in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will be punished, listen, with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power well i don't believe that i don't believe heaven is eternal if it's real at all you just get thrown in there and you you just you know go out of existence just burn up well in matthew 25 verse 46 jesus said that some are going to go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into everlasting life and the word everlasting punishment and eternal life same greek word same word in the greek the word for everlasting punishment, eternal life, same Greek word. Jesus is telling us that even as heaven is eternal, so is hell. And I bring that up because I saw a survey some time ago uh, that just went out asking people. Now, even our Christian folks just went out asking people on the streets, you know, malls and whatever they, where they went. Um, and they asked people if they believed in a place called heaven or in a place called hell. And uh, 76% of the people in America who answered that question said they believed in a literal heaven. 76%. Well, sure, everybody wants to go to heaven. But of that same group only that they, they, they surveyed, only 6% said they believe in a literal hell. In fact, in a recent... Now, you, it, when you talk about people of the world, okay, I accept that. But I just saw a survey not long ago that was taken among professing Christians. And the result was only 40% of professing Christians said they believe in a literal place called hell where God sends people who don't believe in his son personally. And since less and less people say, since less and less people say they believe in hell, and preaching about hell makes them uncomfortable and even angry, I've actually heard people say, I won't go to a church that teaches on hell. Okay, well, fine, all right. It doesn't, make, doesn't mean hell's not going to be real anymore because you find yourself a liberal church that doesn't believe it exists. But if you want to do that, bury your head in the sand, it's, it's, it's up to you. But since less and less people say they believe in hell, and... Um, because in the preaching of hell makes them uncomfortable and even angry. Therefore, in an effort to appease their congregations, less and less pastors are preaching on hell anymore today, if they even believe it at all. And this is mostly due to the fact that in an attempt to fill seats in the sanctuary, that, that's what it's all about today. Happy talk that doesn't offend because I want to fill the seats in my church. We just built this new sanctuary. I got a lot of seats to fill. I don't want to scare people off or make them mad so they don't come here anymore. I'm just going to tell them what they want to hear. But Paul said, if I tell you what you want to hear, I'm no longer a servant. If I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. 
I'd rather have the Galatian statement by Paul, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. But you know, you got a lot of pastors today who don't want to upset people and they want to fill seats in the sanctuary and so they have focused almost exclusively on the love of God while neglecting his righteousness and his justice when they preach and teach. And the result is that almost everybody today views God, listen, as a benevolent, gray-haired, grandfatherly old gentleman who is too kind and loving to ever send anyone to such a horrible place like hell. That's the general attitude in the world today. Consequently, and you can read the news and watch the news just as well as I can, Consequently, we now live in a society where there is no fear of God. What does that mean? There is no fear of coming judgment. There is no fear on the part of many that they're going to have to stand before a holy, righteous God someday and give an account for the way they've lived their life on the earth. No, they don't believe in any of that. And uh, so consequently, if there's no fear of God, no fear of coming judgment, um, well, there's, there, then there's no um, hindrance. There's no restraint for evil. I mean, Solomon said it in the book of Proverbs, that when people have no fear of the Lord, they don't hate evil. When people don't hate evil and don't fear consequences like judgment, well, the result is that they will disrespect and even disregard the laws of God. They will live lawless lives. And when people live lawless lives, and lawless life is just a blatant disrespect and disregard for God's laws. When people live lawless lives, they will be judged by God someday. He's promised he has to. And Jesus is telling us in Matthew 25, verse 46, and in many other places we could look at, that even as there is an eternal place of blessing for the righteous called heaven, there is also an eternal place of torment for the unrighteous called hell. And guys, listen to me. Please don't miss this. While it's true that the God of the Bible is a loving, merciful, gracious God, no doubt about it, who doesn't want to send anyone to hell. You have to understand that. God does not want to send anyone to hell. I mean, you remember in Ezekiel 18 where God is pleading with Israel, who were wayward, idolatrous, really in bad shape spiritually. And God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel and he's pleading with his people. He says, please, please turn from your sins. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. I get no pleasure out of judging people and sending them to hell. I'm a merciful God. I'm gracious and long-suffering. Come to me and I'll forgive you. But of course, many people won't. But that idea is echoed in the New Testament very clearly in many places. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul said, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, all women to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise? Promise of coming judgment. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish in hell, but that all should come to repentance and be saved. God is a righteous judge. He has to punish sin. He doesn't want to send people to hell. That's, what, that's why Jesus came, all right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, 
would have everlasting life. That's the whole idea. This is the work of redemption that Jesus and the Father are constantly doing, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The work of saving souls. The tragedy is even though Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and the whole world could be saved, most people won't be saved because they love their sin more than they love God. They're rebels. And so again, while it's true, God is a loving, merciful, and gracious God who doesn't want to send anyone to hell. God has to punish sin or he will no longer be the righteous judge of all the earth. Look, we're done. Let me just say this. The problem today, I'll just use our culture. The problem today is that people have become so jaded by all the immorality and godlessness going on around them that in their minds, sin is no longer really a big deal. I mean, they don't even call it sin. It's not sin. There's no such thing as sin, they tell us. I mean, what are, your, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Whatever I think is right is right for me. Whatever you think is right is right for you. You know, we don't judge each other. There's no such thing as, you know, sin and so on. So people today, and of course we have sitcoms that are designed to get us laughing at sin. The devil's very smart. If you laugh at sin, it, it lowers your resistance to sin. And again, as Christians, we don't take it very seriously. We downplay it. And so you have a culture right now that is so jaded by sin, has so downplayed uh, the severity of what, in the eyes of God, what sin is all about, because they don't think it's a big deal. And here's where they make a fatal mistake. They project that onto God and believe in their hearts it's no big deal to God either. It's not a big deal to God. You Christians are always harping on sin, sin, sin. You know? Hey, look, we love each other. We're living together because we don't think you can have a piece of paper and it's going to make us love each other. So we're living together, but we love each other. Men with men, women with women, men and women together. I mean, you know, anything goes today. Sin is no, it's no big deal. Well, maybe sin like murder and rape. Maybe ISIS killing a bunch of folks. Yeah, God might get them. But certainly not lying, coveting, you know. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, those aren't really, we love each other, kind of a thing. Guys, some people have a problem with a God who sends people to hell. Oh, how terrible. Let me just say this. God never sends anyone to hell. People choose to go there. We'll talk more about this next time. Just like nobody goes to hell by chance, they go to hell by choice. Nobody goes to heaven by chance, they go to heaven by choice. We have to choose to receive Christ. We have to choose to give God control of our lives. Remember Joshua, the children of Israel, book of Joshua, chapter 24? He had led them into the promised land. 30 years has gone by now, 30 years. Already the people are slipping into idolatry. They're worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, right? So at one point, Joshua, an old man, gathers everybody together in a valley somewhere. Excuse me, somewhere. And he makes this challenge to them. He says, look, stop riding the fence. You think that as long as you're worshiping God in some capacity, you can worship the gods of the Canaanites. It's not a problem. At least be honest enough to make a choice who you're going to serve. 
Whether you're going to serve the gods of the Canaanites, these pagan deities, or the Almighty God, the God of Israel, you've got to make that choice. That's for me and my family. We're going to, we're going to serve the Lord. Guys, Jesus is coming again, and I believe he's coming soon. To judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that will never end. And listen to me carefully, because again, we are done. But Jesus is going to be one of two things to every person who has ever lived. He's either going to be your loving Savior or your righteous judge. And what you do with Jesus now will determine what he becomes to you then. I'll close with this story. It's a true story. It happened in the 1800s sometime. Almost like it was a movie scene, but... There was a guy riding his horse, and uh, maybe in his early 30s. And all of a sudden, he hears this kid screaming. And he looks over, and there's a kid who was, uh, was you know, riding in a wagon with a, being pulled by a horse. Something, uh, you know, uh, spooked the horse. And this thing starts galloping. And this kid couldn't control it. And this other rider knew that it was heading for a very deep ravine would have killed this kid if that wagon would have gone over so he races over on his horse comes alongside grabs the kid about eight or nine years old grabs the kid off that out of the wagon just as the thing is about ready to go over the the edge and you know and of course it did and the horse died but but the kid was saved okay and of course he was very thankful and thanked the man and saying but they you know after that you know, their lives crossed for that moment in time and then you know they both went their separate ways and uh and they lost touch Ten years later, well, during that time, this young guy, now was in his, about 18 or 19, he had lived a very lawless life, profligate life, and he had been involved in crime and all, for all those years. He had finally committed some crime. I can't remember if it was he robbed a bank or it was uh, murder, both of which were punishable by death in those days. And so he was captured. He came before the judge, and as soon as he entered the courtroom, he saw the judge sitting on the seat, recognized him as the man who had saved him, 10 years earlier. He was immediately relieved. Oh, this guy saved me once. He'll save me again. He was absolutely sure that this, you know. So he walks up to the judge and says, Your Honor, I don't know if you remember me. I'm the boy that, you know, I was the boy you rescued those many years ago from certain death. You were my savior back then. I'm asking you to be my savior today and rescue me from this situation. You know what the judge told him? He said, Son, Back then, I was your savior. Today, I'm your judge. That little scene is going to be played out in heaven someday. As people will come before the Lord, people that he wanted to be their loving savior, but they rejected him. And when they stand before him, I'm sure that a lot of them are going to say, well, Lord, how about now? Do I, can I still accept you as my savior? No, too late. Today is the day of salvation right now when you die it's over no more second chances no more parole none of that and jesus christ right now is in he's extending his arms and saying to everyone in this room everyone hearing my voice i want to be your loving savior i don't care what you've done i don't care how bad your life has been lived i don't care what crimes you've committed you come to me with all your heart and receive me as your lord and savior and I will receive you, I will forgive you, and I will save you from the consequences of your sins. Of course, many people won't do that. So someday they will stand before Jesus 
who will no longer be offering them to be their, righteous, their loving Savior, but only now will become their righteous judge. The Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God in judgment without Christ. I don't think it's right God sends people to hell. He doesn't. Hell wasn't even made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. But you want to live in rebellion against the Lord like the devil and his angels? You'll wind up in the place where they're going to spend eternity. And it's not God's fault. So change right now. Repent. His arms are open. Time is limited. Nobody knows if we have tomorrow. That's why salvation is to take place today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness, your love. We thank you, Lord, that regardless of what we have done in our lives, you are willing and wanting to forgive us and make us your children. And Lord, we just pray that you would right now touch hearts, open eyes. And Father, you would cause people to drop to their knees sometime today and receive you, Lord Jesus, as their loving Savior, that they would escape the wrath to come. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.